0: Every rebellion starts with a book club. (laughs) Rebel Book Club.
1: The end of the first chapter, it's a call to arms.
2: All the stories are there for us just to be remembered.
3: Were there things in the book that were new to you? I found
2: his idea not quite sitting with me. I was actually getting a bit of a history lesson.
3: Epics that span great swathes of time.
0: Fiction, but it's based in science.
3: Those things which explode the whole genre.
4: What came first? The novel or life?
3: What is reading the book while we're here?
4: <laughs> in a substantially altered world where sea level rises swallowed the Shondrabans and made cities like Kolkata, New York and Bangkok uninhabitable. When readers and museum goers turned to the art and literature of our time, will they not look first and most urgently for traces and portents of the altered world of their inheritance? And when they fail to find them, what should they, what can they do, other than to conclude that ours was a time when most forms of art and literature were drawn into the modes of concealment that prevented people from recognising the realities of their plight? Quite possibly, then, this era, which so congratulates itself on its self-awareness, Will come to be known as the time of the Great Derangement.
5: This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast and the first of a new series we're doing on iconic green literature. I'm
3: Marianne Geer. And I'm Jessica Townsend. And that was Motia Rahman from XR Muslims reading from Amitabh Ghosh's seminal work, The Great Derangement. Which is the subject of our first literary podcast, which you may have noticed has its own jingle and its own logo and is also coming to you as part of the Writers Rebel project. So, Jessica, who is Amitav Ghosh? So, he is a Writer born in India uh, but lives and teaches in New York now, and he's written nine novels and works of non fiction and also some journalism. So, this is a non fiction book? Yes, so it's a non fiction book called The Great Derangement, and it takes as its sort of central idea. Uh, the silence that writers and artists have around the fact that we're going through a climate and ecological disaster at the moment, and it probes into why that might be so.
6: My name is Amitabh Ghosh, and the book that we are going to be talking about is called The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable.
3: What is The Great Derangement, Amitabh?
6: Well, I think of the great derangement as being this moment in time when we are hurtling towards uh, you know, towards a crisis or catastrophe and we are unable to stop ourselves and in fact, uh, far from turning away or turning back, we are in fact accelerating.
3: Would you tell me a little bit about the format of the book? Because it wasn't originally conceived as a book, I believe
6: no uh, it started as a series of lectures uh, at um, the university of chicago they you know they have these lecture series and they invited me to do some of the lectures uh, to do what of the series and uh, once i had done the lectures then uh, it became a
3: book so i was very intrigued when i learned about this book but i like many people had been pondering this lack of cultural engagement Uh, with the climate and biodiversity emergency. In the book, you come at that silence, that derangement from many different angles. Would you mind just telling us about a few of them?
6: Yeah, sure. The sort of literary practice that we've inherited goes back to the 19th century and, you know, of course, to the 20th century. And what happens over this period is that uh, literature becomes uh, more and more focused upon the human. It becomes more and more focused upon individual sensibilities. Uh, it becomes more and more divorced from the world around us. So in the book, I try to examine the mechanisms and processes. So I examine, for example, the role of probability.
3: This is very interesting, this uh, idea of probability, because actually right now, um, as a member of Extinction Rebellion, one of the things that we have trouble with is that People seem, the world is so complex and the maths uh, doesn't seem to alarm people enough. So, for example, when we say things like, uh, if we carry along on the path that we are, um, there is a 20% chance of societal breakdown, people don't (coughs) respond to that. But it's, you would never get on a plane where you had a one in five chance of the plane crashing.
6: No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, In fact, if anything, I would say the climate crisis really uh, illustrates to us the absolute limits of probabilistic thinking, you know, Uh, because you're right. I mean, every time scientists say, well, there's a 10 percent chance that in 100 years this and this, this and that will happen even as we are seeing in front of our eyes that it's happening. Mm. This is always the problem. They have to introduce so many qualifications Mm. simply because they're thinking probabilistically, you know. I think this is actually one of the real disasters of the situation that we are in, that all our information about uh, the climate crisis comes to us through scientists rather than uh, through, let's say, indigenous people like like the Inuit or indigenous peoples living in the forests or or fishermen or farmers or women who have to walk further and further to fetch water, you know, in India. Those people are also experiencing the climate crisis. They have things to say about it, you know, but we can't hear them. And the reason for that is simply because we live within structures of governance that privilege a certain kind of discourse. And the discourse they privilege is this techno-scientific discourse.
3: Yes. And uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book is that some people, uh, certainly in Europe and the US, are blaming capitalism for uh, where we are with the climate crisis. Uh, But uh, in your mind, it is colonialism that is equally at fault. Why is that?
6: you know i think one shouldn't necessarily make uh, such a sharp distinction because obviously capitalism and imperialism are, are profoundly connected mm-hmm. in the in the broadest possible sense you know as um, as one of the ipcc um, experts has said uh, the climate crisis is essentially a coda to inequality to global inequality and imperialism produces Uh, these structures of inequality. I think one of my issues with uh, the whole discourse on climate is that it tends to be always uh, projected towards the future.
3: Yes, um, it feels strongly like that could be the case because there is so much knowledge about what is going on and yet it is so hard to get uh, the politicians around the world to come to some sort of agreement about it, it does feel like there's a deep resistance going on and what you just described could be part of the foundations of um, that resistance, which means that the great derangement that you're talking about is also about um, vested interests um, obscuring what's going on.
6: Very much so. Uh, Very much so. But, uh, you know, uh, let's also be uh, realistic and uh, honest and say, uh, you know, we are also part of the vested interests, uh, you and me. I mean, uh, you know, um, uh, really the only people who lead uh, sustainable lifestyles um, in the world today are Ethiopian villagers and Bangladeshi villagers uh, who live on very, very little. Uh, I think it's uh, very difficult to see, uh, you know, you and me also making that transition. But I simply can't see that, uh, you know, ordinary Westerners, even those who are very concerned about this crisis, uh, could actually live like that.
3: Mm. And uh, something that you say in the book, which quite fascinated me, was that It might be that the majority world who is used to power cuts and interruptions to regular life will actually, an average person might have resilience that those of us who've grown up in a very privileged, um, uh, steady world uh, won't have. Uh, It was quite quite interesting with the Extinction Rebellion, you know, when we tried to stop people going to work on trains mm. but when somebody was pulled off the train uh mm. in quite a kind of shocking way it it did make you think my goodness how fragile are we this is just somebody not getting to work what if there were food shortages what if you know there are m- bigger problems to deal with than this
6: i completely agree see uh, you know For some reason, for many, many years, climate activism sort of pushed this narrative that uh, poor people will be affected more. And I suppose the thinking behind this, and it's probably true, uh, many more poor people will be affected, but the thinking behind pushing that particular line of argument was that uh, you thereby awake the moral sentiments of rich people or well-off people or whatever. Now, if if rich or well-off people were amenable to having their moral sentiments uh, awakened in this way, then we wouldn't have had, uh, you know, imperialism or inequality or slavery or anything. Mm. You know, I think it's a very bad idea. People act when they are trying to defend themselves. And the reality is that uh, many, many people in the West are incredibly vulnerable. And they're vulnerable precisely for the reasons that you point out. So, you know, I think it's really important to change that narrative and make people understand, especially high emitting people like, uh, you know, Southern Australians and uh, Californians and so on that, uh, you know, they have a deep and profound interest in this.
3: Uh, One of the things that I love about your book is that it gives a perspective which isn't European or American. I know that you have a sort of stake in America and that you live there um, for at least part of your life, but it is extremely interesting to be able to see things from a different kind of slant, from the slant of most of the world. Um, But um, so one thing that I really interested me was you talk about the great what you call the great acceleration and mm. when it happened and that it could have happened say after the first I think you say the first world yeah. war um, and what difference that would have made so you talk about Asia being sort of uh, part of the problem but also will necessarily have to be part of the solution of that would you mind just going uh, through what the great acceleration means for our Listen. so
6: the great acceleration is a, is a term invented by you know certain uh theorists economists scientists and what they, what they point to is that since 1988 89 there's been this enormous acceleration in everything you know in, in fossil fuel use but also um, in consumption of in every kind Uh, in travel. So it's this huge acceleration that we see coming into being uh, essentially after the fall of the Soviet Union and the adoption of the Washington consensus on a worldwide basis. So the argument that I was uh, trying to make there is the same we discussed uh, a little bit earlier that uh, if uh, Asia and Africa and Latin America had made this transition a lot earlier, uh, the the crisis would have had a completely different shape because it would have had, it would have sort of come about or our intimations of it would have come about before technologies reached this point where they became incredibly fossil fuel intensive.
3: But in the so book you also um, talk of a different possibility which is that the climate crisis, we might have got deeper into it sooner And so the delay could have given us a little bit of a reprieve to try and get to grips with it. We haven't got to grips with it, of course, Uh, not yet. That's what the Uh, uh, derangement idea is about.
6: (laughs) We haven't, but people were talking about it, you know, in the 20s and 30s. And if it had become apparent then that Asia would industrialize, that Africa would industrialize, then perhaps we would have come to grips with it. But, you know, the reality is, that the west europe america australia they just assumed uh, that uh, asia and africa would not be able to industrialize they thought we were too stupid that's basically it you know that whole discourse on underdevelopment and so on is just that it just says you know these people can never industrialize in the ways that we've industrialized i mean they just you know they just don't know how to do it and actually you know industrialization is not all that complicated And now that we see that, um, uh, you know, China and India, Indonesia, Africa are all industrializing, we suddenly see the true nature of the problem.
3: Yes. And then there was another myth that sort of uh, came forward, which was that uh, everybody could industrialize and we could all have an American style life. And uh, that turns out certainly with a population of six billion and growing to be completely false.
6: Completely false. And this was understood by people a long time ago. Gandhi said, you know, exactly 100 years ago, he said that if if 300 million Indians, and at that point there were just 300 million Indians, that if 300 million Indians live in the way, way that Westerners do, we'll consume the earth like locusts. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no mystery to this. Everybody knew. Hmm. You know, we didn't actually even need, uh, you know, climate scientists and so on to prove it. It's just, it's just self-evident. It's it's obvious. It's it can be known a priori.
3: But um, it seems like even if um, there was that idea of the rest of the world being too stupid to catch up, the game was also um, rigged, wasn't it? Because there were Indian engineers who were making steamboats and and things like that that could have been uh that could have been rivals in the beginning
6: of course they were um you know and that just goes to to show you you know really how how deeply ideologies of racism and imperialism are so fundamental to this uh, to this crisis and again let me say that you know uh, it, it was nice to hear you say that uh you know my book was a different perspective uh, because it's not a Western perspective, and uh, you're right. And one of the things that really makes me despair about this um, climate crisis is that, in fact, uh, we hear so little uh, from uh, Asia and uh, um, and Africa on this um, on, on this crisis. Uh, overwhelmingly, this discourse on climate uh, tends to be a Western discourse. And you know, the real tragedy of it. I constantly hear people in America and in Europe talking about, you know, how they might have the solution. But the solution doesn't lie in the West anymore. The solution has to be come upon in Asia and in Africa, you know. And if you can't bring along the great majority of Asians and Africans, then no solution is going to work.
3: Yes. Well, that's uh, a good moment, I think, to uh, start drawing to a close. You wrote the book in 2016. Well, it was published in 2016. I'm sure you wrote it a bit before. Um, yes. Is there anything that's changed, apart from the growing, uh, you know, the thriving of Extinction Rebellion and the youth strikes, uh, is there anything that has changed or altered your views uh from the time that you wrote it
6: a lot has changed since i published the book Uh, i think somehow 20s uh, 2017 2018 marked a major inflection point partly because uh, you know the climate crisis became more and more difficult to deny but also i see now really it it can only be called an outpouring uh, really in the arts um, of attention uh, to this uh, to this crisis. And, uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion and writers rebel. Uh, they're both signs of this. Uh, I mean, many, many people now realize what a terrible sort of situation we are facing. And uh, that's true also of writers and artists and everybody. So that has certainly changed, yes
3: brilliant um and, and but there were people writing before weren't there i mean margaret atwood was incredibly ahead of the curve for example very much and very. Uh, but uh, uh, another thing that you say in the book is how cli-fi and sci-fi has been itself marginalized so that those voices weren't weren't so heard amitabh i i'm going to draw to a uh, close now but thank you so much and If you ever do come to England, (laughs) please let us know and let's try and do an interview in the flesh. It's so much nicer to see somebody across the room. But I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. Thank you. Oh, it
6: was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jessica. And please keep up the good work. As Deepesh Chakrabarti
4: points out, the period of the Great Acceleration is precisely the period of great decolonization in countries that had been dominated by European imperial powers. Such being the case, another essential question in relation to the chronology of global warming is this. What would have happened if decolonization and the dismantling of empires, including that of Japan, had occurred earlier? Say, after the First World War, would the economies of mainland Asia have accelerated earlier? If the answer to this were yes, then another equally important question would arise. Could it be the case that imperialism actually delayed the onset of the climate crisis by retarding the expansion of Asian and African economies. Is it possible that if the major 20th century empires had been dismantled earlier, then the landmark figure of 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would have been crossed long before it actually was?
5: Wow, it's just so infuriating when he says, you know, that the British... Assumed the people in their colonies were just too stupid to industrialize, and you know, I'm sure it wasn't just the Brits. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I also come from a country that did a fair bit of colonial damage, and uh, oh, it's just,
3: oh, it's just so awful. I know, it, that, that made me feel really bad as well. I, and I think the rather wonderful thing about Amitabh Ghosh is that he spans both these worlds, uh, both the, so he lives in the uh, global north, but uh, obviously he comes from the south. Mm. And so I, I find the way that he explains things uh, quite moving. I also found uh, when he said, but you and I, Jessica, we will have to give up some of our lifestyle if we're to move to a fairer world and uh, you can feel the resistance uh, even though of course it's fair of course we need to move to a world that that values each human being as a human being
5: yeah yeah absolutely I mean it's hard, isn't it? Because <laughs> the more you have, the more resistant you're going to be to giving yes. it up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's why those billionaires are just making their own yeah, places. They're, they're
5: not keen, are they? Um, so we invited some rebels to read The Great Derangement. And after the Amitav Ghosh interview, we got them together to talk about
3: the book and the issues it raises for them. Uh, with there we were lucky enough to get four rebels. Uh, the first one was Miles Glyn, who's an original Extinction Rebellion yeah. member <laughs> from the art department. And uh, anyone who's come across him will know he's incredibly distinctive and interesting. We also roped in a newer art department rebel called Paul John Nelson, uh, who was uh, rather wonderful to have on the team. As well as
5: Amy Amlani, a Walthamstow rebel. And of course, as you heard earlier, Mafia Ramin, who uh, works on guardianship and visioning and is also part of Exile Muslims.
0: Well, the Dark Mountain Project, obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul. The Dark Mountain Project's been going on for about 10 years and they started what I think people call like post hope ecological creative writing but it's not only creative writing there's all sorts of kind of essays and art and illustrations in there like bi-annual books and they had some festivals in the beginning and I think that when they started they wrote a manifesto um, which kind of got published in the New York Times and it caused a big stir and then the whole thing seemed to have and it was still is very active. But I think that at one time they thought there was going to be an activist movement like birthed as a sort of indirect result of what they did. Um, and I actually think that we're it. We just came <laughs> ten years later.
3: <laughs> Paul, do you have anything to add?
2: Yeah, I was thinking of the derangement as psychological derangement and how we've all... Well, more like delusion, I suppose. And how we've convinced ourselves... Of one story, and we 're all lost in that and so then that relates, I suppose to the the kind of analysis of stories and our cultural narrative, and how yeah we don't we can't dig our way out of it because it 's too real, um, and we can't come to terms with it because it 's too real
3: so that sounds to me like cognitive dissonance, that sort of idea, um, and I must admit i Instead of derangement, I would think of something like the big sleep. It feels like we all sort of know, but there has been some sort of resistance that we have internalised somehow that stops people addressing it. And Miles is right. Dot Mountain has been going for quite a long time, but it has been pretty marginal. I mean, now it's being given a lot of credence. And you're right, it resonates with what is doing. But I remember George Monbiot uh, saying that they were just too negative and that Dougal and Hind and um, Paul Kingsnorth um, both thought activism isn't working anymore. Amy, what do you understand by the great derangement? Um, so
1: those um, psychological kind of references made by Paul, like those are the things that really stuck with me and what I understood. Um, and I'm freshly back from um, spending a couple of months in Australia with my family and i feel i myself experience that derangement like <laughs> as much as i've been involved in things extinction rebellion as much as i know um how people do distance themselves from you know this knowledge and you know i thought i was just completely like oh my god i totally get this emergency i completely yes. get it but essentially when i was in a position where I saw fires on the horizon and we were constantly watching the news every day, every hour, every hour trying to get updates as to you know whether this thing was going to impact on our property and our lives and having bags packed <laughs> with our documents and stuff. Um, the stress of that over a period of high risk where the temperatures were at 42 degrees and this fire was just crazy, it was growing. and. You know the the relief that I felt afterwards was so profound that I just wanted to stay there. Mm. I wanted to forget what the last forty eight hours or the last you know two weeks had been like. And you know, in anticipation of all of that, the the smoke that was coming in from. So I was Mm. in based in Canberra initially when I when I got there. The fires were kind of mainly around Sydney, hmm. a whole state away. Yes, I've walk out. down the road.
3: Motia, do you have anything?
4: I'm just thinking about yeah, around the we about cognitive dissonance and just relating, trying to relate it to what the you know Amitav Ghosh book and what he talks about when he came across this tornado. But he's finding he's not writing about these incidents that are happening because to write about the incidents is to bring what is uh, almost. Kind of crazy into what the novel is the novel is meant to be talking about this life this order uh, it's like the, the modernist novel is uh, talking about you know the, the ordinary and, and and opening that and to talk about these uh, crazy coincidences where he was in the middle you know just chose a road by by accident and actually at the beginning of a tornado you know why how do you write about these things and so there's something in, in the literary form of the novel which is preventing us from talking about it i don't know I've
0: always been brought up reading science fiction so I don't have this different view of like novel and anything else. So when I was like a young teenager I read like really you know weird like books including one where the world was like massively populated everything was running out and I mean and I wrote read loads of really weird stuff so you know, everything that's happening now, it's just like we're just in one of the least promising timelines.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, maybe we're all inside Miles's head. <laughs> 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 Paul's got something to say on this.
2: <laughs> I, was, I was doing a bit of research, and I have <laughs> found, uh, found an article, Bella Caledonia, that Dougald Hein had written recently about, and he makes reference to uh, the Great Derangement, and within it, he kind of critiques Ian McEwan's novel about Solar, or called Solar, rather, um, and and then also sort of critiquing him as a person and the sort of world that he's in and then writing about. And so that he quotes an art, um, something that Ian McEwen said in 2007 in an interview. That fiction hates preachiness, uh, nor does it much like facts and figures or trends or curves on graph. And uh, yeah, I think that feeds into the great derangement and how, yeah, it's the the inaccessibility to write about these the the truth and the the like slow moving yes. chaos.
3: I
1: think also for, for me, like having experienced those bushfires and been completely terrified and completely paralysed, like I feel like it's only now and like after this, you know, talking through it and, you know, relating to other people about it and really having time to process how, like, <laughs> like, what that means in reality, coming face-to-face with it, I think it's, like, a big deal. So I, I wonder whether, you know, more writers need to experience the realities of climate change firsthand in order for them to process it, in order for them to write about it.
3: I interviewed Amitab yesterday and when I was talking uh, to him he was saying that when he goes back to India he talks to fishermen and he talks to the people growing crops and they all see changes. And the trouble is that we have privileged the voices of science and science is a very conservative uh, slow moving incredibly rigorous uh kind of process, and so there there's a kind of slowness in that process, but it isn't just happening in science you know it's it is right there in our world. one of the um things that I really loved about the book um is how he tied up so he tied up the kind of conservatism which is associating with the bourgeois novel with the emergence of probability. Did anyone else uh, find that interesting? Miles?
0: I mean, I remember talking about what I was doing with XR with some friends of mine a couple of years ago. And and they were like, yeah, but, yeah, but people have always thought there was going to be the end of the world. But, I mean, they haven't. I mean, they have in like, in medieval times. But in recent times, we have this really... You know, we've got really good health care, people don't get run over very much, everyone's, you know, most people are just still, you know, we don't lose people that much. We've got this really unusual view of reality that humans haven't really we had touch. before.
4: Uh, uh, yeah, just going to say into that, like, who's the we? And when you said we have uh, an unusual, and, and yeah, I guess in the West we've grown up and uh, kind have of got to that place, but these farmers and they're living with the randomness much more than we do been the and we've got this ordered sense, but I do. I mean, like one of the fictions, one of my favourite. I used to read a lot of science fiction as well, and I loved science fiction. And then when I was like fourteen, suddenly discovered this whole thing called literature, which is a complete different world. So I was like, oh, that's what the normal land is. And I was on the borderlands, thinking that was the normal land. So it was all kind of inversion. But I, I really loved um, Hermann Hesse's writing and Siddhartha, and uh, he talks a lot about these kind of synchronicities of coincidences that lead you down these kind of crazy paths of your lives and. That was what I was when I was reading Gosh's writing. Saying, you know, why and that with that with the cyclone, why isn't that? I mean, that, that felt to me like this is what subjectivity is. This is where you begin to find an imaginative life where life and and the world and you meet, and that, maybe that's where we should be with literature rather than trying mm. to use science and to objectify the world. Like the world is becoming alive. That's what I felt when I when, with climate change. What I'm finding in the way ways that Gaia. It's like a Gaian revolution she's mm. come alive to us and is meeting us now and uh, just as much as uh, we were meeting the world in the industrial revolution saying oh yeah it's the anthropocene and we've got so much power mm. and now actually she's coming back to us
3: yeah one of the other very powerful things about the book which we should mention is a little bit of a sort of scattergun approach because it was written as a series of lectures it wasn't conceived really in the beginning as uh, necessarily one piece, but it brings together lots of different ideas. Um, but one of the very striking things that Amitabh Ghosh says in it is that the climate and ecological emergency is only going to be solved in Asia. Also, he talks about the fact that Asia only kind of geared up industrially recently as giving us a kind of stay of execution to an extent, that it slowed down the process of global warming, but I have to say that in the interview I did yesterday with him, he was saying that maybe if Asia had industrialised earlier, it was was a, a different cultural and political moment and maybe it would have been less difficult to deal with it at that stage. Does anybody have any points, uh, any any kind of feedback about that? I thought it was amazingly refreshing not to be in America or in the UK talking about the crisis. Uh, it put my head in a different place.
4: There were, yeah, this idea that he had of the, the great acceleration, the process of empire, and, and then deco- and then decolonization of the Second World War meant that um, during the empire, The extraction of wealth meant that there wasn't an industrialization of the same level in those countries that were being colonised. But after decoloniality, suddenly they they were free to, and there was an acceleration. So in a way, he was saying what would have happened if that process had started earlier? We might have reached a 350 ppm, or 350 parts per million of um, CO2 much earlier and would have recognised where we were. I don't know, I found his um, idea not quite sitting with me
1: yeah i found that really interesting as well and um and it was really nice to kind of you know see this issue coming from an indian perspective um like looking at looking at india now um it is in a completely different political um social economic situation its population is so young like, is it 50% of um of indians are under 25 that's that's incredible um but i think there's a real difference in terms of like an identity like a post-colonial identity like people i think um like the youth in india they just seem really untethered by the kinds of things that my parents and that kind of generation had like they kind of aspired to be more western and to be more british whereas i feel like there's a real freedom amongst the indian youth and you know they're experimental and like i see so many cool green initiatives coming you know just blossoming like from the grassroots and i and i wonder if part of that is that they're equipped with so much more resilience like their their institutions have been like you know rife with corruption for ages like you know they're, they're having to um live life and go through life with without trust in institutions um and the police and you know and i've experienced it when i've been there as well and so like i just feel like there's this whole generation who are coming up with these really interesting techniques of um Um, you know using sustainable products and like having really innovative ways of like solving problems around climate change there is massive change in terms of what I've seen in generations of my family um, in Gujarat so like my cousins are a lot older than I am um, and my um, nieces and nephews Um, are, you know, of this millennial generation and the world is before them Um, and, you know, I'm just seeing, like, huge innovation but they also have um, a massive cultural legacy. If we're talking about literature, like Amitav was kind of um, alluding to, like, these... Epics and these stories that span great great swathes of time, it kind of positions you in a in a different way. Yeah. And I feel like you know, as much as we, we talk about the numbers in India being and Asia generally being potential consumers, they are also potentially a huge energy that can be motivated and mobilized to you know, to, to change things.
3: I also, I found his description of how people are, even in metropolises in Asia, just more flexible than we are. So, for example, even in Delhi, you can have power cuts. You, you know, things don't work and, and, and while you're there, you sort of roll your eyes. And But it means that people have to work around those sorts of issues. Can you imagine... I mean, when New York, when the power went out in New York, they made films about it. (laughs) People still talk about that day. How are we going to be if, you know, we have power shortages and things like that here? we We don't have a kind of resilience or a flexibility. And things like the solar power systems that they're setting up across India, because they are... They're portable and be, they're associated with households, but also you can lend and borrow energy from each other. So around sort of crises, uh, there would be energy with some kind of flexibility. We have nothing like that here. On the subject of colonialization, were there things in the book that uh, were new to you, Paul?
2: Yeah, I was actually um, getting a bit of a history lesson from the... the oil exploration and how um, I think Amitav describes it as it's not a singular western narrative that we tell ourselves and has been told countlessly there's a saying about that um, something like until the lions have their own historians tales of the hunt only glorify the hunter Um, and I think that relates somehow so yeah so we get this narrative and of course we get this narrative because it's the narrative that people with power want to Maintain that. I didn't know that there was these oil the oil fields that existed, and that's, and it was a long history of like was it hundreds and thousands, well, thousands, potentially thousands of years that people would, had been using the the natural resources. And then there was a relationship to that in um, Amitabh's writing in, in literature. It'd be interesting
4: views on this because it's just sort of thought that just, I hadn't thought about that either until I just suddenly coming across it, and I thought well, that's. You know, it was only like 1859 or something when uh, that first rock fellow, I can't remember it mentioned in, in, in America, discovered the oil and it was like the exploitation. But previous to that, China and India and other places, Burma, all these oil places that were seeping, the oil was seeping and, and they would just use it. And I was like, what's the difference? And then it struck me as a thought. In Bangladesh, my my mum would always talk there's this word called boytol, which means those who have left the land and have completely disassociated themselves from the connection to their land. I thought, you know, these people were the indigenous use of the oil, they lived in that place. They were belonged to that land. And yet when America when America, when British British people went to America they were visitors or they were emigrants, they didn't, mm-hmm. they, that land wasn't theirs and they discovered this oil. And so the idea of exploitation, does it come because you're so disassociated from the land you don't really connect mm-hmm. to it in the same way as you would have if you lived there and you would like, I want to, you know, this is my I'm not gonna make a mess of my, my home you know, mm-hmm. in that sense. And I wonder, yeah, what the difference would have, culturally as well, you know, mm-hmm. is when, when, when you um, have that work ethic of exploitation compared to, um, yeah, sharing and, and and sharing the resources.
2: As you're speaking, um, that reminded me of again Bruno Latour in Down to Earth, yes. and I, th- I think within that he's s- kind of ends on the point that you need to be grounded in a place, grounded in the place that you're in, or find a place. And 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 he uses the ZAD um, in France as um, whether it was activist or is an activist um, campsite where they've taken over the land in retaliation against the airport, proposed airport, and the people have come together with everyone in the local area and people coming from outside that local area, the people that aren't necessarily French, and occupying that land with a belief in that place and a disbelief in the expansion and idea of progress, I suppose. And yeah, I think that's something that then again feeds back into these ideas of myth that we, we lose and in, in story that where there's this narrative and arc that, that I even see... I, I have trouble with like big blockbuster movies in the, in the way that, say, you watch Star Wars and you're like, oh, the rebels against uh, the Empire. Cool. And then people go home and then they forget that it's not like just a story. That's like a, a, a myth and a narrative that you can take and... Live, but people don 't necessarily see it in that way, and it just frustrates me it 's like there is even something like that has a kind of power as something more than just entertainment.
3: This book was published in two thousand and sixteen, and I think probably written fifteen sixteen that of course was before extinction rebellion, before the youth strikes. The thing that Amitabh Ghosh kind of saw as comforting was that faith groups, and in particular, he mentions the Pope's letter. Uh, It's very interesting, the last section. Um, Amitabh compares the Pope's letter to the Paris, uh, the COP 2015, um, the accord that came out of it, which limits uh, nobody to anything, (laughs) Uh, but which aspires to a wonderful future where we keep below 1.5 degrees warming. Do you feel that that's the main thing that is a hostage to fortune or are there other things in the book that any of you see which now begin to feel a little bit older? I find most of it still quite current.
0: Well, what disappointed me is that he doesn't have any answers. (laughs) I mean, it's like we need that thing. We need to find that thing to create the fiction to make everybody like totally aware and, like, let's, let's do this.
3: Um, but, Miles, you are a science fiction fan. Don't you think uh, you were sort of alluding earlier to the fact that maybe the answers were already beginning to be sketched out in science fiction and that might be sucked more into the mainstream? He, he at least gives science fiction credence uh, as um, a live, good Create a product, doesn't he? That has been marginalised unfairly. Um, do you have no?
0: I've been reading or rereading a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin recently, and I mean, lots of those books that were written in the seventies. That was when people figured out about climate change. That's when people figured out about about what would happen if population kept on growing exponentially as it is, has, was. And also, like even the films, like um, Silent Green, that's pretty permanent. Um, I mean, all that stuff was dealt with, but it was always slightly distant. They were dealing with the stuff then. Um.
4: I just think you have to go wider than like science fiction. I mean, it's like it's like this. No, I no, mean, I, I love. No, it's just this whole sense of like, where is the cultural centre? It's still coming as you were saying. Like, we're spectators looking into our literature look into our culture and we're all it's entertainment whereas you know um, somebody a friend of mine who's doing a PhD in uh she's at Canterbury University but she talks about um, the literature like Homer and and the myths and she said they weren't entertainment these were stories that were told as myths for this for the civilization to transform people you'd bring them into a certain space and and a participation a bit like a spiritual religious and those stories are holding your ancestry and your sense of your identity and those kinds of stories I think are so much more powerful and, if, and I think Extinction Rebellion for me is beginning to try to open narrative and maybe that's what's missing in the book is uh, is a solution. This is what I think can change things when we begin to dip into the mythic level of our existences uh, um, which are contained in those literatures like uh, Um, Left Hand of Darkness, I think was one of my favourite books, uh, Mercy Lagoon, but it's like seen still as a, and and Star Wars, yeah, it's still seen as uh, entertainment, but when we bring them into the realities, these are myths that hold us, and how do we change our myths to these collective stories?
3: I must admit, I was at um, uh, Iggy Fox, also known as Rafe, to his family, Uh, memorial last week and people were kind of reading poems and telling stories about him and he's a young man who died last week he's 25 who was part of our movement Um, and at their best those stories were um, amazingly moving. And they are stories of our time and of a young person who kind of engaged at that kind of level. So it does begin to feel that at our best, we're not always at our best. We're a lot of human beings and uh, we make mistakes and things. But um, at our best, we do kind of plug into that kind of energy. So um, maybe some of those beautiful stories will be about us.
0: Nobody reads books. People watch Netflix sometimes go to the cinema, and there's a lot of science fiction in them both at the moment.
4: I did English literature, my uh, degree, long, 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 long time Not ago. Um, but we had to study like what the birth of the novel, and I remember it was like Robinson Crusoe. It was like one of the first, like apparently novels of like the West. But that's the West. And I, was, I think one of the great things of Great Derangement, and it was just actually pointing out some of the literature of my of, of Bengal, which had been some writers there. Were like I need to follow these up because I've never heard of these people. <laughs> Why haven't I heard of them? And uh, they're talking about these great narratives and these great, you know, um, stories that hold. Uh, de- a very different arc but anyway robinson cruise yeah uh, is 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 the story of the individual it's a story of that internal journey that the individual has and it's very much focused on that still that we're still living in the west of the self-development or the self-development mentality of like what is it to me how can i develop myself and you know the other cultures are about you know it's letting go of the self that leads you to better so i'm just wondering whether the the deeper we keep going to literature whether it's science fiction or not is it still just going on the same cultural thing of just about my story about you know am i going to be the great hero the hero's journey that you know campbell talks about but where's the heroine's journey this other way of trying to you know and that's the great opportunity maybe in culture and stories is to tell different kinds of stories
3: uh,
1: yeah that's something that that i i feel really resonates it's like i've um looking at popular culture which just informs so much of the public consciousness and what people talk about every day and how they relate to one another and this whole thing about there being a hero in a story and they win like that <laughs> that's surely something that that needs to change and it's not even just talking about um you know climate change as a, as a real thing and bringing you know what's relegated to science fiction which i think is very noble um but Effectively, what Amitav Ghosh is saying is that um, that it's not the, these sorts of um, uh, environments, these backdrops, these settings are not taken seriously um, when it's the most serious thing that we that we face right now, and it's here. Um, so, I really felt like at the end of the first chapter, it was a it was a call to arms to have those. Um, to have these writers to try and innovate. There's, like, a little small thing where he talks about um, the graphic novel and being able to use images and, and I guess, like, narrative through visuals, through, like, a different way of um, capturing the imagination. Um, and, you, you know, like, I guess innovating, innovating with the mainstream storytelling i think that that is something that would i don't know would be amazing if writers <laughs> could do
3: <laughs> so i'd just like to thank you all for being here um paul and miles and Amy. We've been very lucky to be hosted in the Ridley Road Social Club. You may have heard the odd strains of a band (laughs) practising a couple of rooms away, but uh, as Extinction Rebellion, we're always keeping it real. (laughs) Thank you.
5: So that's the end of our first ever book club podcast. (laughs) We made it. We're going to have more of these.
3: What is the next book going to be? So the next book I'm really excited to announce is The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace-Wells, which caused a real impact last year. Wow, Um, yeah. So I think uh, it's... um, goes into the science and into looking forwards in a very rigorous way, hugely influential and we're very lucky because he's going to be in London and we're going to be able to interview him live. Ah! Amazing. can well, As live as it ever gets for yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It will be recorded, but he will be a human being in the room. Woo-hoo. So please, buy, go to the library, get a copy, borrow a copy of The Uninhabitable Earth, and sometimes in mid-April there'll be a new podcast about that book. Amazing. Right, well, that's it from the XR Podcast and uh,
5: you'll hear from us again soon. She's been Marine Vandegar. And she's been Jessica Townsend. <laughs>
4: rebel Book Club. Great to rebel with
2: a book. On the XR Podcast.
4: Where life and the world and you meet.